0: Hey guys, I feel about as nervous as I did the first time I ever preached. I thought I' would have made a bit more progress in five years, but that's all right. Um, it is, yeah, a massive privilege to be up here tonight preaching my last sermon as pastor, uh, and it's been a really interesting week preparing this sermon because um, I guess it sort of feels like the pressure is on to preach maybe my best message ever, um, or Maybe summarise like everything I've said over the last five years, or maybe summarise everything I haven't said over the last... No, I'm kidding. Um, none of that is probably very realistic, but tonight we are finishing up our series, How to Adult, and this last message is one that I have given the title, History Makers. History Makers. So let's start by setting the scene for this. Over the last couple of months, we've been talking a lot about adulthood and what it means to journey towards maturity in a whole range of different areas of our lives. So things, for example, like relationships or communication, work, money, boundaries, suffering, we talked about, generosity, and a whole lot more. So go back and listen to the series if you missed any of those. Um, But the premise of this whole series has been two really big realizations. So the first of those is that adolescence actually now lasts a whole lot longer than it used to. Um, So stats show that people are now leaving home a lot later than they used to, um, starting a career, getting married, having kids, uh, a whole lot later than they did in past generations. And so that's the first realisation. The second realisation is quite simply a passage from Ephesians chapter 4. And this is a passage we've kept coming back to again and again. And it says that our aim is to be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ, So that we're no longer like immature children, but speaking the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. And I've deliberately left a message with a theme like this, History Makers, to the very end of the series, because if we want to make history out there in the world, then we first need to get the junk in our own lives sorted out. Like that's really important. That's a good thing to get done in that order. And so once we're seeing progress in our own lives, then we can turn our attention to bigger and more important things. In fact, one of my big points tonight is going to be um, exactly that. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So by way of outline, this is where we're going tonight. If you take notes or you like, um, yeah, just kind of like sermon outlines and all that kind of stuff, I'm going to suggest three main things that are really important for us as we seek to make history. First of all, know your roots. Second, start at home. And third, lift your eyes. So first, if you want to make history, know your roots. So I first came to this church in about the year 2001. Probably some people in this room weren't even born then, um, which is a bit embarrassing. But the first time that I came here, it was a very eye-opening experience for me. I was a pretty awkward teenager. Um, I was from a very traditional church. And I, what I saw was a room full of young people who were worshipping freely and passionately. And as though, like talking about God as though he was a real person who they really got to have a relationship with and that they were really excited about. That had a really big impact on me. And uh, I know quite a few, uh, I became good friends with quite a few of these people. Um, But there were also many others, um, as the years went on, a surprising number of people who slowly, who had attended this church, who slowly started walking away from their faith. And it was just like the parable of the sower, if you're familiar with that parable that Jesus told. Um, So, for example, some faced problems or opposition for their faith. Uh, Some got caught up in the temptations of the world or the allurements of the world. Uh, Maybe some just didn't have deep roots in Jesus. And um, maybe there were some who never really understood the gospel in the first place. So in an odd way, um, that experience of seeing so many young people lose their faith, um, this sounds kind of strange, but it was a really big motivation for me. Because I was like, if I'm going to be pastor, if I'm going to lead this church, I want to make sure that that same thing doesn't happen on my watch. And I don't know how how successful I've been with that, but one thing I have set out to do is to really push you guys to engage with the deep questions, with the big questions, and really get you to ask yourself and ask each other about the questions and the doubts that our culture has about the Christian faith. I figure that if we really wrestle with what we believe while we're still young, then we're going to have strong roots for when we're older and when the really big challenges of life hit us. Because, yes, we face a lot of challenges as young people, but you've got no idea, and I'm only speaking from someone who's 34, but there are so many challenges to come, so make sure your roots are deep when you're young. As I move on from this role, wherever you're at in your faith, I just want to encourage you to continue wrestling with those big questions. Don't just accept the things that you hear as true. Whether that's in Christian circles or in the mainstream media, in fact, particularly in the mainstream, really question what you hear. Go to Scripture. Understand what it says for yourself. Know the cost of following Jesus. Don't think it's just, he's going to make my life amazing and everything's going to be fixed. There's a cost in following Jesus, so know that cost. Don't put up with easy answers. Listen to the questions that the culture is asking, like really listen to them, and then listen to the the answers that Jesus gives to those questions. So I have all of this in mind when I say, know your roots. But I've also got some other things in mind. And um, if you've been around for a while or if you follow me at all online, you'll know that one of my great passions is this theme of how Jesus has actually shaped the culture that we live in, Western culture, Western civilization. Um, And so I'm going to nerd out on you for a little while. I'm going to indulge since it's my final night here. Um, (laughs) But I honestly believe that this is the most important untold story of the 21st century. You won't learn about it in school or university. The media is almost entirely silent on this subject. Politicians and other public figures don't dare whisper a word about it for fear of being told that they're politically incorrect. But almost all of the things that you and I love about the world that we live in So whether we're talking about education, or um, welfare, or the freedoms that we have in a place like Australia, or the peaceful lives that we live, or the high value that we place on reason, and on knowledge, and on work ethic, and things like that, those things, all of those things have been deeply and profoundly shaped by Jesus, by the teachings of Jesus, and by the life of Jesus. And hear me out here, these blessings are culture-wide. And so they benefit everyone. It's not as though it's just Christians or followers of Jesus who love this stuff, who get excited about it. Everyone actually benefits. So the middle class family who's never been to church loves these aspects of our culture. So does the CEO sitting high in an office tower. So does the atheist university professor. So does the Muslim migrant. In fact, when you think about it, migrants are a dead giveaway. Why is it that it's lands like Australia and the US and Europe that people are like flooding to get into? It's because there's something about Western civilization that is really loved and really valued. There's something different about the West, and so we need to ask why that is. All of these questions are really important at this particular moment in time, I think, as well, because Christianity has never been so unpopular. If we really want to live as followers of Jesus, if we really want to live as adults who contribute to the world around us, then we have to know our roots, our roots as Christians. So I've covered some of these topics in past messages, but I actually put a blog together on this, um, or finished it this week, and so it's fresh in my mind, so I want to give you guys some of the highlights. And so for some of you, this may in fact be quite new. But first of all, I've got just four really quick themes I want to cover with you. The first one's equality. So we go on and on and on in the West about equality, um, and it's something that we really value, but where did this value come from? Why do Westerners feel such a sense of injustice when someone is disadvantaged for their gender or their ethnicity or their creed? Of course, you know, what happened in Christchurch last week, we're all outraged by, and it's, it's shocking and it's horrific. But even down to very small-scale discrimination, us Westerners feel very unjust about that, and we should, and it's good. But why? Because not everyone has this same sense of injustice. For most of human history, in fact in much of the world even today, it's perfectly normal to treat people unequally. Most ancient civilizations practiced slavery, so Plato and Aristotle, two famous Greek philosophers, they advocated for it, they were in favor of slavery. If you fast forward to the modern world, around the world, um, particularly in places like Asia, there are more slaves now than when slavery was abolished. There's also shocking inequality that's deeply entrenched in a lot of modern cultures. So the caste system, for example, is alive and well in India, where people are just treated differently because of their ethnicity. Child marriage and honour killings are tragically commonplace in the Middle East and in Africa. I could give you a massive list of these sorts of injustices, a lot of which we don't even really hear about because we we tend to be fairly focused on our own kind of Western world. But there's so many injustices like this that go on around the world. And it's got nothing to do with people from these nations being less anything than us. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying anything racist here. I'm simply saying that people do act on deeply held beliefs. Because ideas have consequences. When you believe a certain way, then you behave a certain way. And this is also not to say that Western cultures are perfect either. We've got all sorts of stuff that we've still got to fix in our own backyard. But when you think about it, equality is a value that's slowly making its way around the globe and it's flowing out into the world from Western nations like ours. Nations that have been deeply shaped by the Bible. See, Jesus did what almost no one else did in the ancient world. He embraced women and children. We take this for granted. We read the Bible and, oh, of course he did. But that was not common in the ancient world. He said that God knows the number of hairs on every person's head. He said that if one sheep got lost, a shepherd should leave. A good shepherd would leave the 99 and go after the one. And the point he was making, by the way, wasn't about sheep, he was talking about the value of every human life. Jesus said that if we fed a sick person, or we visited a criminal in prison, or if we clothed the poor, it's actually as though we were doing that good deed to him himself. That's how closely Jesus identified himself with the poor, with the marginalised. These might, like I said, all be quite familiar Bible stories, but they were revolutionary in an ancient setting. We need to understand that. Jesus actually defied his culture to teach the sorts of stuff that he taught. And 2,000 years later, it's those ideas that have actually remarkably shaped Western civilization. Equality is something that the mainstream fully embraces now. But so many don't realize that this idea actually traces its roots to Jesus, Or take democracy, for example. Now, that word might put some of you to sleep immediately, um, but maybe you don't know how good we have it, because we're not ruled by kings, we're not ruled by tyrants, we're not ruled by the mob majority, which is what most cultures through time have experienced. We, the people, actually get to guide this project called democracy through the representatives that we send to parliament, in our case to Canberra. Now, just about all of the ideas that make up our parliamentary, the Westminster system, were actually developed by Christians who believed the Bible. It was mostly followers of Jesus who wrote the foundation texts of modern democracy. Texts like the Magna Carta, Lex Rex, the English Bill of Rights, and America's Declaration of Independence. Mostly Christians wrote those documents. And it's on these ideas that we've actually built the freest, safest, and most generous societies on earth. And the rest of the world is still trying to catch up. And it's funny, you may have heard people talk about the separation of church and state. And often people say that because they're trying to uh, maybe prevent Christians from having opinions on politics or on, you know, broader society. But the reason that we have separation of church and state in the West, the reason that we actually have freedom of religion, is because followers of Jesus imposed their view on society which said everyone, regardless of faith, should get a say. And so now we find ourselves being sidelined and it's kind of ironic if you think about it. Another one. This is um, one of my favourites, actually. And that's science. So the story being told almost everywhere today is that science and religion are at war. Have you heard that? It's implied kind of very widely in our culture that those two things are at odds. But what you're not told is that the founders of modern science were mostly Bible-believing Christians. So people like Pascal, Faraday, Pasteur, Kelvin, if you studied any subjects like chemistry and biology or um, physics at, at high school, at university, um, you know all about these guys. And the, the, these guys and countless other famous scientists were, first of all, followers of Jesus. Isaac Newton, for example, a name we're all familiar with, he discovered gravity, but he also wrote over a million words about the Bible. And if you actually trace to where where science came from, you'll find that it arose only once in history, and that is in Christian Europe. And so there were some other ancient cultures that had scientific insights, like China, India, Arabia, but it takes more than just insights to develop a culture of science, and it's a culture of science that actually gave us modern science. For that, you need Christian assumptions, Christian ideas, like these. First of all, the idea that objective truth exists. So there's a lot of Eastern faiths. In fact, a lot of people today even say that each person can find their own truth. Oh, that's true for you. It's not really true for me. Um, But science only works if truth exists and if truth can be discovered. That's a very Christian thing to think. Or the idea that the universe exists. Now, that sounds so obvious, like I'm almost pulling your leg. But actually, a lot of Eastern faiths see the world as an illusion, As a dream, we're not really here, we just think we are. Europe believed, on the other hand, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, there is a real universe that can be studied. And and that really changed the game. Or the idea that the universe is orderly. See, a lot of religions, even many people in um, traditional cultures today, believe that there's a bunch of different gods kind of running different parts of the universe. And the early scientists, on the other hand, believed in one creator using one set of laws. And it was actually on this assumption that they made so many of the discoveries that you and I just take for granted today. What about the idea that we're fallen and sinful? No one likes this teaching. Everyone hates it. Even Christians, we just, we find it really uncomfortable. But it's actually this idea that led to the scientific method. Because the scientific method says that a discovery can only be made once we've doubted ourselves so much that we can no longer doubt ourselves anymore. That's the way the scientific method works. And trust Christians to come up with something so miserable and pessimistic as that, right? And yet, it's what makes science work. Final one on science. How about the idea that our brains can be trusted? So if we're here by some cosmic accident, um, there's really no way that we could possibly trust the conclusion that the bag of chemicals in our head comes to about anything. But if an intelligent God created us with intelligent minds then it is possible to trust what our brains are thinking. So all of these ideas were essential to get science off the ground. And all of them come straight out of the Bible. So if you hear anyone say that science and religion are at war, just remember some of the stuff, hopefully, that I've shared tonight. Because right up to this day, science is still based on such Christian ideas. I could share so much more with you about the Christian heritage of the West, but let me touch on just one more really briefly, and that's compassion. So I'm sure most people here have probably heard about the persecution of the early church, Christians being fed to lions, you know, all those sorts of stories. Well, all the while that that was going on in ancient Rome, so Christians being absolutely, you know, hammered for their faith, they were actually, the church, the Christian church, was running a program to feed the poor in the city of Rome that was bigger than Rome's civic guilds. That's how dedicated they were to loving the poor. Followers of Jesus picked through rubbish dumps, they walked the city streets to rescue babies that people of other faiths had simply thrown away into the trash or into the gutter. And with these efforts, with their example, the early church actually ended infanticide, so child killing, in the Roman Empire. That's remarkable. Um, if you ever have the time to research the history of hospitals, if you'd ever be so inclined to do that, you'll find that basically it's a history of the church. So no society provided public health care in the ancient world. It just was not a thing. They'd provide it maybe for the military or something like that, or for the rich, but not public health care. Then in the fourth century, a Christian called St. Basil opened a 300-bed hospital his vision spanned 1,000 years until monks were caring for uh, patients in about 37,000 monasteries around Europe. And then if you fast forward a little bit further, followers of Jesus led the charge as modern medicine was born, so as a lot of the modern discoveries were being made. So Christians, like Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, pioneered things like antiseptic surgery or physiology, transplant surgery, the vaccine. One even wrote what became the standard medical textbook for two centuries. These are Bible-believing Christians. The world wouldn't be the same without Christian heroes like William Carey. So he was a missionary to India, but he, earned, he ended the practice of widow burning. Or think about William Wilberforce, who abolished the slave trade. Or Martin Luther King Jr., who transformed civil rights in the U.S., Mother Teresa, her name's literally a synonym for compassion. Now, I'm not saying that it's only Christians that care. I'm not saying that at all. But I think it is safe to say that Jesus has inspired more compassion than any other force in the world. Can you see why I'm passionate about this stuff? It totally changes your perspective on the world, and it really challenges a lot of the, I guess, the, the stuff that we're hearing from the mainstream media about Christianity. So when I say know your roots... I'm talking about more than just your personal journey of faith. Your personal journey of faith is extremely important too. So know your roots with that stuff. But when I say know your roots, I'm also saying know the story of the church. It's epic and you're a part of it. Don't be ashamed for being a follower of Jesus because you're standing in a great cloud of witnesses. We don't need to boast about it either, but what God calls us to do is simply to join in the work that he has been doing for 2,000 years through the church. That is an awesome story to be part of, so stay part of it. All right, so that was the first point we talked about, knowing your roots. But what about, I think I must have skipped something here. All right, I forgot to put it in. But anyway, the next slide is supposed to say, start at home. So secondly, if you want to make history, start at home. Now, I've just spoken about some of the Christian heroes who made history. But there's something else I'm passionate about, especially when I talk about a theme like how to adult, how to live as mature Christians, or how to impact the world for Jesus. And that's the need for us to start right where we are. Start at home. So Mother Teresa said it like this. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. It's pretty, um, pretty simple, but it's also very challenging. We're living in a time when everyone is a hashtag activist marching for some great cause and yet strangely we also seem to be living in a time when respect and common decency is like at an all-time low and so there's a real irony there you know anyone can join a cause anyone can become a keyboard warrior even for Jesus but as Christians do we know how to love do we know how to treat the people who are right in front of us with dignity and with respect I've quoted a guy called Jordan Peterson a lot during this series because he talks so much about responsibility, about the need for us to step up and be responsible. He's a very well-known kind of mainstream um, public intellectual. And he he has a similar quote to the Mother Teresa one. He puts a bit of a twist on it. This is how he says the same idea. He says, "'Set your house in perfect order before you criticise the world.'" I really like that. "'Set your house in perfect order before you criticise the world.'" If we want to be world changers, the place to start is right in front of us. And sadly, it is still all too common to meet people who have been hurt by the church. It's a really common theme. They'll tell you about how poorly Christians have treated them. One of the biggest things that you and I can do to show the world that Jesus really does make a difference in our lives is to just be decent people to actually live like Christians in our day-to-day interactions, in all the little choices that we make. Listen to Romans chapter 12 on this topic. I haven't got it on the screen because it's a long text, but Romans 12, I'm reading from verse 9 to 18. And I'm in the New Living Translation. So Romans 12, 9 to 18. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honouring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them, pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honourable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. It's pretty simple, hey? This is the kind of love that the world needs. This is the kind of example that the world needs. So changing the world has to start right in front of us with the people that we interact with every day. Making history has to start at home. I was reminded this week of my old school principal at Cornerstone College where I went. And his name was Mal Wegner. There were about maybe 500 students at my high school when I was there. And he made it his business to know every single one of us by name, and he did. And he would spend his lunch times like I think if I was a school principal and had all those responsibilities, when it comes to break time, I'd just be kicking back in my office, you know, don't disturb, sign on the door or whatever. But he would spend his lunch times walking around the yard, picking up rubbish and chatting to students. Who doesn't want a school principal like that? And it's been 17 years, I am afraid to admit, since I graduated from high school, but I still remember him as a legitimate hero. Not because he did anything huge and amazing, but because he did small things faithfully. Because he knew how to love. Because he was a living, breathing example of Jesus. And so you might, you know, we're talking about being a history maker tonight. You might hear those words history maker and think, well, that sounds all just a bit too big and idealistic for me. Like, how could I ever achieve that? But, see, making history actually does start with the simplest acts. And that Mother Teresa quote was brilliant. And as I was um, reading some of this stuff, I found other things that she said. Um, consider this, for example. None of us, sorry, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Or, if you can't feed 100 people, then just feed one. And she also said, yesterday is gone... Tomorrow has not yet come. We only have today. Let us begin. So simple. And think what you like of Mother Teresa, too Catholic, too cliche, whatever. But she actually did what she said. And she did it consistently for a lifetime and she made history. Not all of us are going to be amazing at everything. In fact, none of us need to be amazing at anything at all. We just need to be faithful with what's in front of us. And in that same chapter in Romans, just before I read the part that I did before, there's a section that comes just before it, which I want to read. This is verses 6 to 8. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak, speak with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So if you want to make a difference in the world, be faithful with the small things and God will look after the rest. Finally, if you want to make history, lift your eyes. Just split water all over myself. That's great. <laughs> Jeremiah was a fascinating prophet. So Jeremiah, his ministry spanned four decades when God's people had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And so the Jewish people were very much a minority in the land of Babylon. They found themselves on the margins of society, often misunderstood, sometimes mistreated. Does that sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me as I think about the church. And yet despite all of this, this this was the situation of God's people in that era, But despite all of that, God's people were not told to start a revolution. Now, obviously, God also didn't want them to just kind of meld into the culture around them and become, like everyone else, worshipping the gods of Babylon. So it's not revolution and it's also not full assimilation. God wanted to call them. God was calling them to a third way, a middle road. Not compromise and not subversion either. Instead, they were told to settle in, to build houses to plant gardens to raise families and to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to God on its behalf. This is what he said in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7. He said, "Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare." Do you see that? So they're not trying to start a revolution and change everything. They're also not to be exactly like the Babylonians worshipping their gods. They're actually to pray and work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. And so in our unique setting in history, in this post-Christian moment that we find ourselves in, this is so relevant for us. In many ways, we, the church, are living in exile. In 2019, we find ourselves in our own kind of Babylon. But God's call to us is not to start a revolt. It's, not also, it's also not to compromise and to, to just live like everyone else around us. It's actually a third way. It's a middle road. It's the way of the exile. This series, How to Adult, has been really important because as young people following Jesus, as a matter of priority, we do need to get our lives sorted out. We need to let God shape the way that we do relationships, the way that we face trials and approach work and do everything else in our lives that we've been talking about the last couple of months. But see, ultimately, the purpose of all of this is not ourselves. This is not about us feeling good about ourselves because we're you know, righteous or whatever. It's not about making other people respect us more. It's not about setting ourselves up for better career opportunities. God wants us to be people of integrity, mature in Christ, adulting well, so that we can be a blessing to the people and to the society around us. That's the point of it. In fact, all the stuff that I was sharing about Jesus in the West, the point of that is not about the church is great or whatever. It's actually, we need to be a blessing. God has called us to be a blessing to the society around us. And so like in Jeremiah's day, God wants us to work for the peace and prosperity of the Adelaide Hills and the peace and prosperity of this amazing country that we get to call home. Timothy Keller, one of my favorite preachers, has an amazing saying that captures this well. He, he simply says, we're supposed to be, the church is called to be, a counterculture for the common good. A counterculture for the common good. Same, same, but different. Jesus puts this obviously better, because he's Jesus. This is in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Learning how to adult takes us beyond ourselves. Yes, it starts at home. It starts with the little stuff. It begins by dealing with the dysfunction in our lives, working towards healthy communication styles, getting our finances in order, putting others first, and all all these other things that we've been talking about for the last couple of months. But see, the goal is much bigger than just this. Learning how to adult means using our gifts to serve in the local church. Really good opportunities coming up the next few months while I'm not here. (laughs) Step up, use your gifts if you haven't done that yet. Please do that. It means not just serving in the local church, it also means seeking the welfare of the communities that we live in, your neighbourhood, your neighbours. It means being even politically aware and politically engaged because if we get to help guide this project called democracy, then we need to have a say, we need to know what's going on. It means having a vision for our lives that's bigger than just career and family, but that actually seeks to extend the kingdom of God into the culture around us through every opportunity that God gives us. And so for this, we need to lift our eyes. As followers of Jesus, we might find ourselves increasingly on the margins of society. Even if I think about the five years that I have been here at Allgate, there's been some phenomenal changes in Australian culture um, that have made being a Christian harder than five years ago. But God is still on the throne. And... His call to us hasn't changed a bit in those five years. We're still called to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill. The darker it gets, the brighter we shine. And I've got a few different things myself planned for this year, which means I'll be parting ways with you guys, at least for a time. But we're still family, and we're still on mission together wherever we find ourselves. And so wherever we are, each of us, is still called to be a counterculture for the common good, to seek the welfare of the city around us, to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness as the main goal of our lives. And so it's my prayer for each of you guys that as you continue growing to maturity in Christ, as you go on to become history makers, you'll remember these three things. First of all, know your roots, that rich Christian heritage of all that we love and value. Also, the fact that following Jesus starts at home. It starts with the people and with the opportunities that God has put right in front of us. And then finally, to keep lifting your eyes beyond yourself to the world that God loves and that he paid for with Jesus' blood to redeem. Would you guys stand with me and pray? God, we just thank you so much that you are on the throne. And as much as there are challenges that face us as the church and there's a lot of big stuff going on in the world, Lord, things that can make us pretty confused and pretty scared at times, you are an incredibly good God and you've got an amazing call on your church and you have not left us in 2,000 years and you don't plan to. Thank you, Father, so much that you are the good shepherd and you are the shepherd of this church. Even as I step away from being a shepherd, you are the chief shepherd, Lord, and you're going to look after this flock. You've got good plans for us. And I just want to thank you that I get to leave this church when it's in such a healthy state and that you've been doing amazing things these past five years and that's going to just continue and increase with the time to come. God, thank you so much for this family, this group of people that I get to call my family. And I just pray your blessing on each of them, Father, as they seek to live as Christians, to very simply follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to be history makers, to change the world around them. Lord, bless every person here. I pray that if there are any who have not yet made that decision or have been in some way holding back big parts of their life, Lord, that you would just enter into them by your Holy Spirit tonight and give them the freedom to say yes, to follow you with their whole hearts, their whole lives. God, we just thank you so much. You are such a good God. We love you so much. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.